Today's TribCast is presented by Celtex. Discover how Celtex stem cell technology can improve your quality of life. Simply register for a free seminar at celtexbank.com. And Lobby Days. Lobby Days is the only software that automates the process of setting up a lobby day at the Capitol. Learn more at lobbydaysmedia.com. Texas Talking Ball. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Ball. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas God's Hey there, howdy. This is Jay West Texas Leeson from the other side of Texas, where we're in the storm of Regent Gate in Lubbock. I'd normally quote the great John Monford and say Lubbock's a hard place to help. But then again, none of these Texas Tech regents actually live in Lubbock. Anyhow, enjoy this week's TribCast with your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, August 22nd with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. Hello. Oh, you sound so upbeat. I'm still having a hard time being back from vacation. Yes, well, we're also having a hard time with yeah, you being back yeah, from vacation. You're welcome for that setup. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And investigative editor Dave Harmon. Hi, glad this to is be here. Dave's first uh, inaugural appearance on the TribCast, and we're doing it in, un- in an unusual venue today, but we'll try to hold it together. Uh, Evan, uh, I don't know, should I start with you? I don't care. You're very interested in the speaker's race. I Uh, am interested in the speaker's race. That's exactly right. Who's not interested in the speaker? Who possibly listens to this podcast who is not interested in the speaker's race? Well, who is the latest addition to the speaker's race, and why does it matter? The latest addition to the speaker's race is State Representative Travis Clardy of Nagadoches of East Texas, Republican member who was widely expected to get in this race. In fact, back earlier in the year when I was at uh, Stephen F. Austin University in Nagadoches, I asked Representative Clardy on stage, are you going to run for speaker? And he said he was kicking the decision about whether to get in a race until after the November elections. Apparently something changed because it's not after the November elections. And he decided this week to announce he was getting in. He's the fifth candidate, the fourth Republican to run for speaker. This is the first open speaker's race in 25 years. The office of the speaker is not literally different the, the powers of the speaker are the same as they were 25 years ago, but the politics of being speaker and the politics of the legislature and the legislature itself has changed dramatically. So this is really one for the books, unprecedented, and we don't know what's going to happen. Ross has a column today about this very question of how much we do not know about the speaker's race. It is way too early to know how this is going to shake out. Clardy is probably the first of about another four or five Republicans who are likely to get in this race before it's all done. Patrick, walk us through who is currently in the race and, you know, where Clardy's chances well, I can't might wait fall. wait to see if he knows the... Can you, can you name him? <laughs> Come I'm on, buddy. Yeah, there are five, five speaker candidates Pass right the now. Quiz. Four Republicans, including Clardy. You also have John Zerwas, Tan Parker, and Phil King. And there's work. one Democrat, Eric Johnson. Well done, buddy. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. You passed the quiz. <laughs> I it was a trick you go question. home for the day. Yeah. Uh, okay, but I'm not going to stop and, there. And the the yes. timing on when these people got in, I guess, is, is worth noting. You, Phil King is the only one who got in before uh, the outgoing speaker, Joe Strauss, said he was retiring. I think it was Phil almost King, a year ago. It was almost a year. It was at 
it was around the time of TribFest last right. year. Um, it was about a month ahead, I want to say, of Strauss's announcement. Uh, John Zerwas got in within the hour or two after Strauss announced his retirement. Um, and then you had Tan Parker get in, oh, I want to say, a couple months ago, maybe, uh, much longer after the actual announcement itself. And I guess I just emphasize what Evan said and what Ross said in his column this morning is that there's still so much we don't know about how this the, how the the shape of this race is ultimately going to end up. This could be just a fraction of the number of candidates uh, that we end up seeing, on the, at least on the Republican side. Um, and there could be so much more to come. And right now, a lot of the race, I think, is just playing out very much below the radar, definitely not in, in public. Um, and it, I think it's just incredibly early and tentative. Right Although now. everyone's talking about it. And I would say, yeah. Emily, to the point that Patrick was making about how much we still get are yet to, to learn about this race, there are three key things that I'd be keeping an eye out for. One is the degree to which Republicans feel bound by the caucus's vote that they will select one consensus candidate and put that one candidate forward as the candidate of the caucus of can, the party. Can you explain that for readers, uh, listeners who aren't <clears throat> There totally is no in the requirement that? that Republicans all line up behind a single candidate. Um, but the Republican caucus within the last, what is it, I don't know, six, seven months, voted that they would uh, in December, so, I believe. In December, voted so it's longer ago than that, more like nine months. They voted that they would um, line up behind a single candidate that they designated as their candidate and that they would all march lockstep out to vote for this one candidate. This would allow for the Republicans to determine who the speaker is as opposed to a Republican candidate who got a couple dozen of his fellow Republicans to peel off and joined with whatever number of Democrats decide to support a coalition-style candidate. One of the complaints about Joe Strauss, as he's been speaker over the last five terms, is that Democrats voted for him and that that somehow made him, in the eyes of some Republicans, an illegitimately Republican or conservative speaker. The fact is it's a math problem more than a politics problem for anybody who wants to be speaker. you got to get to 76. Right now, there are 95 Republicans in the House and 55 Democrats. After this election, there could be 90-60. It could be 95-55 again. Or it could even be 85 Republicans and 65 Democrats. The road to 76 gets easier with each additional Democrat for a Republican who wants to be a coalition speaker. So this idea of the caucus vote is one question that we don't have yet resolved. A second question we don't have yet resolved is how many Democrats, in fact, there will be in the House, because that's going to change the math. And then the third question is, within the Republican Party, along a continuum, where will the Republican candidate who ultimately is put forward by the caucus be? Will it be more of a John Zerwas type who is more Straussy in his politics, or will it be a very conservative candidate from the other end of the of the of the of the end of the spectrum here. Well, I, mean, I think we just don't know yeah. yet along the continuum where that person's going to show up. Right. Uh, Ash asks on uh, social media, where do you feel like Clardy lines up in the conservative to liberal spectrum compared to the other candidates? I might take it a step further and say, if you were ranking these five candidates from liberal to conservative, where would they fall? Starting obviously with Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson is, of course, the most conservative of the five <laughs> candidates. Right. So then, in what Warrior. order? In what order do they go? I, I would say King, Parker, Clardy, Zerwas, Johnson, most conservative to least would be Slow my... Slow down. Do that again. I would most say conservative. King, King, Parker, mm -hmm. Clardy, Zerwas, Johnson, but that is a very back of the envelope on the spot. Yeah, assessment. I mean, I think, you know, if you set aside liberal to conservative in those labels, you think about, you know, the kind of like traditional 
who's going to most likely align with like the Strauss Republicans and the versus the anti-Strauss Republicans. And someone like King right now, I think, is probably the most palatable option for the, you know, the Republicans, the House Republicans who want a break with where the current regime is. Uh, with the current House. Right, although Parker is the chair of the Republican caucus in the House, and let's say that the difference between King and Parker on on being conservative is pretty infinitesimal. I think there's a bigger drop-off between those two guys and Clardy, at least as they're perceived. Sure, and Parker, as someone someone who's the chair of the House Republican caucus, you have someone who clearly has experience uh, in working with both wings of the of right. the caucus, um, I mean, you don't get to that position or, or hold that position without having you know built up some credibility. The, que- in the, in the question regard. is, will there be a more conservative candidate to enter the race, more conservative than King? Right. If, if I assume that King is the most conservative of the candidates in the race, do I believe that there'll be a more conservative candidate than King? Well, I can think of at least two people who are rumored to be looking at the race seriously who I would perceive to be more conservative than King. One would be Ron Simmons from Carrollton, and the other would be Craig Goldman from Fort Worth, who for a long time has been rumored to be the choice of the Freedom Caucus if one of their own members could not be the guy. Goldman is said to be the acceptable person next most conservative to them. So I think this is going to the, the spectrum is going to widen out a little bit to the right. Now, we have no confirmation that either Simmons or Goldman or anybody else for that matter is going to get in a race, but that's the assumption, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. On uh, Friday, I was in San Antonio, and I was moderating a panel, and on my panel were John Zerwas and Ina Minjares. Uh, and John Zerwas and Ina Minjares had a date to talk about John Zerwas's speaker candidacy after the panel. They were leaving the venue to go meet in a coffee shop, and he said that while he was in San Antonio, he had two other state lawmakers he was going to meet with Odds Democrats. Are they were Democrats. They were both right? Democrats. <laughs> yes. So he's he seems to be very public about how he's making the yeah. rounds, trying to be that that consensus. Well, you candidate. remember what he said to we, when I interviewed him, right? About right. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say in Evans' interview with him, he seemed to be pretty open about the fact that he w- would be running as a continuation of uh, you know Speaker Strauss in some ways. That you know if. Yeah. If you like Speaker Strauss, you'll like him. He seems not at all put off by the idea that he might get to the Speaker's office by, uh, b- b- with the votes of Democrats along with Republicans. Not only put off, I think he sees it as the only path. Well, and Republicans have said, in response to Zerwas's saying that, Republicans have said, look, any Republican who joins with Democrats to elect a Speaker who is not the choice of the caucus is going to have a target on his or her back in two years. So this is absolutely going to break down along those lines, and, and I just don't think we know. Look, Cardi getting in the race is not unexpected. It's not really news, although it's news. Um, you know, it's entirely possible, kind of per Godfather 3, that our true enemy has not yet revealed himself, right? God, we don't, we don't, I, I we, don't know. How many times do we have to talk about Godfather on this every podcast? Every damn time, um, uh, because I am a white man of a certain age. Uh, speaking of being a white man of a certain age, Eric wants to know, does Evan ever not wear a tie? Actually, I can. I saw a picture of Evan on vacation this last couple of weeks. He was with his son, and he was like wearing was a button-down. He was basically <laughs> in a tuxedo. He looked like he was in some fancy button-down Somebody shirt. has to be the grown-up around here just saying. All right. Well, switching gears, uh, Dave, we are uh, coming up on, amazingly, the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, we've had reporters who've been in the field on this story basically for the entire year. Um, tell us, what is the current status of the recovery? Uh, slow and steady. Uh, you know, this is one year into what's going to be many years of recovery. Uh, think back to Katrina, which is the only hurricane more damaging than Harvey in terms of money. New Orleans still hasn't come back 
completely population-wise. Galveston is just now reaching its uh, pre-Hurricane Ike population levels. So this is still early days for a lot of people. I think if you look at people with, with money and good insurance, they've been able to rebuild and things are pretty much back to normal. People without a lot of resources are still struggling. The reporters we've had in the field in Rockport and Houston and other places have found plenty of people that are still living in mold-infested, damaged homes. Um, what is the total tally? I mean, how much property damage at the end of the day have we been talking about? How much disaster aid? How many families affected? I mean, is there sort of a by the numbers on this kind of stuff? Yes, uh, the the number. I mean, the numbers. They're big numbers. 125 billion in damage. Again, second only to Katrina. The number of people who applied for housing assistance, disaster housing assistance, was close to 900,000 people, and about 373,000 actually got it. Uh, the aid, the number I keep seeing from FEMA is around 14 billion. And then you add, there's another $5 billion from HUD for long-term recovery assistance. So the FEMA money has already gone out. The HUD money is going to be longer term. But you put that up against $125 billion in damage. And obviously, the people who were hit by Harvey are going to have to pay for a lot of that. Is this a political issue or should it be a political issue? We're entering an election season in which the performance of state leaders will be judged on this as on other issues by the people who seek to remove them from office. And we've already heard Mike Collier, the candidate for lieutenant governor, attacking both Lieutenant Governor Patrick and Governor Abbott for not doing their jobs on Harvey. We know that Miguel Suazo, who is the Democrat running for land commissioner, is critical of George P. Bush's administration of the Harvey bit of his um, portfolio, as Jerry Patterson was in the primary running against him as a Republican. So how much of a political yeah. issue is and this? And you have Ted Cruz making it front and center to his reelection. Uh, uh, yeah. r running an ad in which he's touting yeah. his own role, right, yeah. in a recovery. So how do you, how right. do you assess that? You know, I think the state... Yes, I think it is a political issue because the state did choose to take a larger role in the recovery than other states have after similar disasters. So immediately after Harvey, Governor Abbott told the federal government, we got this. And they took over a lot of FEMA's traditional short-term recovery Role. That's when he sort of tasked George P. Bush exactly. with doing it, right, the, in the general land office. Yes. Surprise. So the, gen <laughs> the general land office had to step in and really start this from scratch. And they have faced a lot of criticism because obviously there was a learning curve and they had to ramp this up. And it slowed things down. Uh, Brandon Formby wrote a great story about this at the six-month mark about how the state took this on, told the feds, We've got it, and it didn't go very well. Um, so in that way, yeah, I think it is a political issue, and you can judge the state leaders based on, on what they did or didn't do. The other issue was as the state was looking to the feds for disaster recovery assistance, we were sitting on – the state government was sitting on 11 or $12 billion in the rainy day fund and did not use it for the rainiest day ever in history. <laughs> right. But isn't, isn't the pushback on that, I'm, I'm not advocating for this position, but I'm simply mouthing it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm putting words out to it, that, that they're going to spend that money, but they're going to, or a portion of that money, but they're going to spend it on the back end to essentially reimburse for costs incurred as opposed to spending it on the front end. Yes. And I think that was the governor's 
But it, it, don't we believe that to be at least legitimately a strategy? I mean, it, not whether we agree with the strategy or not, isn't that going to happen? Don't we think that's going to happen? We, don't you think that's going to happen, Svitek? That's what they say. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I think well, the alternative is to have a special session, right, and to, to tap the ring deep. Which is There'd not going to no happen for them session. to get yeah. access to those dollars right now without bringing everybody back and having a two-thirds vote of the mm -hmm. House and the Senate. They, they are right. anticipating making those expenses. I mean, they're already talking about it headed into the next session. Yes, yes. I, I just think in the when you talk about the, the politics of this, when people were recovering from this hurricane and everything was a mess and Houston had been underwater— People were calling on state leadership to do something immediately, and they looked at that huge pot of money and said, right. what's WTF. stopping you from calling a special session? We need, we need help. Yeah. yeah, politically, I think it's a very silly an issue. It's very easy for people to, to understand. What, what I was going to ask you, though, is that 11 or $12 billion, as someone who's followed the, the recovery, which is, can you put that in a context like in terms of the scale of state, federal dollars that have been expended on this? I mean, how much would that have helped, or how is that a drop in the bucket? Well, I, you know, if you look at the, at the damage the hurricane caused, yes, we're talking 125 billion in damage. So 10 billion, you know, it's it's 10 percent maybe. Uh, when you look at what the federal government has has earmarked for this, which is about 14 billion, 10 billion is close to what uh, the the feds have have set aside for this. So it's it's significant. Yeah. Evan, have you had your the you know road to recovery from Harvey? Do we ever have our event that got canceled like 16 times because of bad weather? Yes, I don't expect you to know anything about the organization you run, but, <laughs> but yes, we actually did have that event. Um, we have another one coming up on the 30th of uh, of August that I actually think will be great. That Brandon Formby is going to moderate at Rice University with. Um, Beth Van Dyne, who's the regional administrator from HUD, Marvin Odom, who is the chief recovery officer for the city of Houston, former CEO of Shell, George P. Bush, the land commissioner, and um, Tracy Brasher from FEMA uh, are going to talk about the federal response to Harvey a year later. No, we actually – look, I think that the um, – the, the, you cannot have enough conversations about this because – it's a little bit like the family separated story, which Dave has also played a big role as an editor in, in helping us to, to marshal our resources on. Uh, we're all very distractible in the news ecosystem these days. You know, you're following the family separated story, and then all of a sudden Michael Cohen flips, and now you're chasing that particular squirrel, and you leave behind this story that is not fully told. And one of the things I've been happiest about on the family separated thing is we haven't lost our focus. I think on Harvey, we really have a year later stopped covering, we in the broad sense, stopped covering this story, even though, as Dave correctly points out, there are still a lot of people who are who are, who are digging themselves out. Given that you've run this organization, you should see we've had a series running all week I was week about to specifically cite young Paul Cobbler, <laughs> ping pong Paul Cobbler story about uh, three families a year later. Uh, and and the, that, was a, that was a terrific piece that looked at, from the perspective of three different families, how faith and debt... Uh, uh, and other things help them get uh, through a year a year later. But the point on this is Harvey and the family separate story, I think, are two of many stories that you could name where you can't possibly spend enough time talking about it. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before our next topic, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, Texas State Technical College, which offers money-back guarantees to students who earn degrees in high-paying technologies but don't find jobs within six months of graduation. Learn more at tstc.edu. 
All right. So, Evan, um, back to you for a big surprise we got last week when former state senator right. Robert Duncan, chancellor of the Texas Tech University system, widely believed to, you know, as Ross reported in his column, to be sort of a salt of the earth guy. It's like a Frank Capra character. Yeah. Right? yeah. Suddenly announced what seemed like a very premature retirement. Um, right. What happened? Turns out that this was not a wonderful life after all. Um, <laughs> Uh, look, Bob Duncan, when he was in the Senate, was very well regarded by people in both parties. But the Senate and the legislature at the time were very different. Bob Duncan would be what passes for a Democrat these days in this legislature. Let's just say that. And you can never take politics out of a conversation like this. Um, Senator Duncan, he's still called senator by a lot of people up there, uh, became the chancellor four years ago of the tech system. And unless you lived in and around Lubbock or in and around the tech university system, I don't think that you knew the trouble was afoot. I certainly had not heard, and I think a lot of other people who encountered the Duncan departing news for the first time, uh, any, anybody had a sense that something was coming. Well, after the fact, what we're hearing, Emily, is that there have been conversations at the Board of Regents level for some time about uh, concerns over the uh, spending at the system, that the budget for the system had been increasingly going up. There was concerns about uh, the way that Duncan was running the system to the point that Duncan's contract was not extended at the time that people expected that by kind of rote act of the regions that they would have uh, extended his contract. That did not happen. And ultimately, the regions made a decision to part ways with Duncan. As I said, politics is in everything. The minute that Duncan's retirement was announced, there were almost immediately questions about what role the governor's office might have played. Governor's office denies that. Or what role the Texas A&M University system, which has been at loggerheads with the tech system over the creation of a vet school in the panhandle, what role that the tech, uh, Texas A&M University system or John Sharp, the chancellor of the A&M system himself, might have had. Sharp denies, A&M denies. Um, the regions have come under fire by local reporters in Lubbock. Jay Leeson, who did the intro to our podcast this week, a radio host in Lubbock, has done some reporting on his blog about what he calls Regent Gate and the degree to which regents may have somehow uh, inappropriately or otherwise uh, may have been involved in, in this decision. There's a fundraiser for the governor that has been brought into this. You may know something about this. A fundraiser for Governor Abbott that's planned uh, for Lubbock where certain people who are on the host list have now been removed for the host list for being critical of the Duncan uh, decision um, or for questioning the role that the governor or the governor's office might have played. It's a very complicated story. It's a kind of story that we exist to be in the middle of, and our colleague Shannon Najmabadi has done a great job at, uh, I think, at, at laying all this out. What was the timeline here on, I think you probably know about this, it took a while for Rick Francis to come out and provide this explanation, whether right. you believe it or not, but it took a while for him to come out and say anything. Yeah, it was um, almost a week before the chair of the Board of Regents uh, said something publicly publicly about what uh, was the basis for the decision to part company with Duncan. And in fact, in the op-ed in the Lubbock Avalanche that he published the other night, I think it was like two nights ago, posted uh, late, late on the evening, I think on Monday, um, he even said, I've been remiss in not speaking sooner about what happened. And he specifically called out the system budget and administrative issues that led to the to the 
parting of ways. There's a lot of suspicion, though, around what really was behind it. Well, take us down the suspicion rabbit hole when get it my comes Alex to, Jones. Yes, please. Yeah, <laughs> get your tinfoil hat. And begin to think about I mean, screaming everything. Take well, shirt. Well, take well, my, I'm not taking my shirt off. I do have a tie on all the time, through by the way. Talk so. through why the vet school palace intrigue has been so Well, this is just a parochial fight between A&M and Tech over, you know, do we need there to be a vet school? I mean, So the, who supports the vet school, the Texas Tech vet school? Who doesn't? The why tech is people this? support it. The A&M people don't support it. The A&M people don't support it because they've got their own plans for this stuff. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not that complicated. It's, it's, it, it's parochial in the sense that that fight has been going on for some time. Um, Duncan has been a big proponent for the vet school attack. Um, some people have actually floated after Duncan's departure that maybe the sweetest irony would be for the tech school to come into existence and to be named the Robert Duncan <laughs> School of Veterinary Medicine. Um, again, the vet school has been floated as the flashpoint in this whole thing, but others have pushed back and said, no, and in fact, I, you know, a source I know in the governor's office suggested to me today that uh, if if the governor's office were truly upset enough about the vet school for Duncan to be removed, the governor could have simply line-itemed the appropriation for the vet school from the last budget. So this whole conspiracy theory about the governor's office being upset about the vet school and that Duncan's departure being orchestrated out of Austin is belied by the fact that the governor did not line-item veto the expenditure for the vet school. Okay, wait, but this governor went to college where? He went to the University of Texas at Austin and Vanderbilt. I forget. One he did not go to a and It is this the previous governor, governor go who no. is the big A&M booster. Rick so Perry. why yes. would Governor Abbott give two flips about the vet school fight? Politics? Uh, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, like, if Rick Perry were still the governor, to me, this might be like a, you know, make more sense. I don't understand. I don't, I don't assume that Governor Abbott only does things associated with the school he attended. I mean, there's politics in higher ed and there's politics between the systems. You know, John Sharp and Greg Abbott have a pretty good relationship now. Sharp having decided to pick up the baton, Dave Wright, on the Harvey recovery effort. Yes. As the czar. I mean, who knows what? You could, you could, the thing about a conspiracy theory is it doesn't have to make sense. Right. Right. Especially because the regents have now come out and said basically we're, you know, we are still committed to the vet school. Uh, Donna asks on social media, how does the governor's office explain uninviting donors as party hosts if he doesn't have any skin in the tech decision? I don't know enough about this storyline. Well, I mean, the, the, not I mean, advised. Yeah, I mean, we haven't confirmed that, but I mean, the, you know, this is the, not the governor's office that's hosting the fundraiser. It's, it's a campaign. the campaign, campaign which right. is a you know. Private, Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference can, between the two, but they're different. Sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they can do whatever they want. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we haven't confirmed it, but uh, there's obviously been some reporting on that. Um, but like Evan said, this is pretty simple. I mean, I think it was some time ago. John Sharp put a op-ed in the Dallas Morning News that just said. Simply, the headline, I think, was Texas Tech doesn't need a vet school. Right. So, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we are getting no some mystery here. So. Some Texas Tech uh, boosters are commenting that Abbott must be upset because they, yeah. they beat UT <laughs> last year. Yes, it's all about football. It's always, it's always about, football. about football. All right. Well, right. let's move on uh, to a more serious topic, the uh, families divided issue Evan mentioned a couple minutes ago. Uh, Dave, you've been playing point on our new Rio Grande Valley Bureau and the reporters there who've been collaborating with Time Magazine. And most interestingly, this week, the Guatemalan news organization Nomada uh, to tell the full stories of parents who have de- been deported without their kids. Uh, tell us a little bit the quick version about the father and son we profiled this week. Yeah. And I said quick version. That means shorter than Jay Root's reporting. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I'm going to try. It was it's an incredible tale uh, of a father and son who left a rural part of Guatemala. 
the father's plan was to come up to the U.S. for a couple of years, work, make some money, pay off some debts back home, and then return to Guatemala. Uh, a smuggler told him, you have a better chance if you take your kid with you, which ended up being very bad advice. They were caught after a harrowing journey where they were packed into crates with dozens of other people, trucked across Mexico. At least one person, he says, died along the way of suffocation. They were caught by the Border Patrol, separated. Dad was deported back to Guatemala after signing a, a piece of paper in English that he didn't understand. The son is now in a shelter in Baytown near Houston. Uh, it's been almost three months that he's been there. And uh, they still don't know when they're going to be reunited. And, and why haven't, like, what's the government's explanation for why this kid has not been reunited with his family? We do not have an explanation. We reached out to our government. We reached out to the Guatemalan government. We reached out to everyone we could think of. And we got crickets. Yeah. Well, what do we learn from this particular story about what's happening to parents separated from their kids at the border? I mean, U.S. officials have been claiming that a lot of the parents still separated from their kids chose to leave them behind. Yeah, that's that's been kind of the the line that I've heard from several administration officials, most recently the, the head of Health and Human Services, that if parents were deported without their kids and there's about 360 parents who fit that description and their, their kids are still in the U.S., that they opted to have their kids stay in the U.S. And I'm not saying that's not true, because I'm sure in many cases it is, because they have friends or relatives in the country, and they want their kids to have a chance to, to get asylum and, and stay in the country. But in this case, the father was very clear that was not what he wanted, and he wanted to be sent home with his, his son. So this father has since acquired a pretty high-profile lawyer who's been in the news a lot this week. Tell us about who that lawyer is. Um, you must be talking about Michael Avenatti, who we all know from the Stormy Daniels situation. Situation. That's a nice word. <laughs> uh, I'm going to call it a situation <laughs> because uh, I think that's best for, for our listeners. Our listeners. Um, he is working with a Laredo civil rights attorney who has met with, uh, or has taken on this case, agreed to take on the case, and is now weighing his weighing the options for, for father and son so they can be reunited. Evan, why is Michael Avenatti playing in all of these different spaces? Michael Avenatti is playing in every space. He's at the VMAs. Was he at the? Did you watch the? Well, I did not watch the VMAs, I have to, but I saw I, that he was at the VMAs. Do I have to ask whether yeah. you watched the What was he doing VMAs? at the VMAs? Were you on stage with Logic? No. <laughs> was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was, or he was at least at the VMAs red carpet. I think he was also there at the actual show. He's every place. Why is he every place? Well, he's talking about running for president. We'll see whether he actually runs for president or not. But if you're if you're a, a national figure and you're trying to attract attention for a potential presidential campaign, you go to the Iowa Fish Fry, whatever the. Crap State that fair. Was that week. State and then fair. you go to New Hampshire and you go to the VMAs and and hang out with Nicki Minaj. All right. Well, on is, that is, note, is Nicki Minaj really going to be the last two words of this podcast? Yes. That's my all the kid, time my we kids have. Patrick, tell me, by the way, that in the Travis Scott and Nicki Minaj feud, that they are Team Travis Scott. Where are you on this, by the way? Uh, I don't know if I want to weigh in on that publicly. He'll weigh in publicly on, this, <laughs> on the outcome of the speaker's race, but he'll, he's not going right. to weigh in right. on that. 
All right, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Uh, I confess it is personally awesome. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Celtext, Lobby Days, and Texas State Technical College, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Patrick, Dave, and our producers, Bobby and Michael Ray, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Oh, I'm, I'm on Travis Scott's side, I think. Yeah, what, yeah, well, I think Nicki Minaj did a lot of damage to her brand. What are you worried about? Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just the same uh, thing about Nicki Minaj. I don't Nicki know. Minaj. I don't want to get involved publicly. i got to stay on the sidelines.